Sometimes it's moments of brokenness which create the greatest transformations. Times where fear gives birth to faith, pain leads to healing, and chaos dissolves into peace. It's in these times we often see God more clearly. For in our deepest turmoil, He remains faithful. When our spirit is crushed, He remains strong. When our moment is too heavy, He carries the burden. As gold is refined by fire, we too are often refined by struggle. It's part of growing, changing, becoming. Lately, the journey has been difficult. Our breath has been labored. Our steps uneasy. But we stand in faith knowing who is leading us through this desert. The God of peace, the God of hope, the God of restoration. Okay, we're coming to the end of Joel. And I hope that you continue to ponder it and look at it. I hope it's encouraged you to not only look at Joel and that prophecy, but also to look at some of the others too. Because I think we have a bit of hesitancy sometimes when it comes to the Old Testament. How does it fit in? How do we read it? Um, how do we not get freaked out by it? Because sometimes it's a little troubling. And Joel has some of those characteristics too. I've been so appreciative of the uh, Sunday morning group footnotes who have come out faithfully and helped me to kind of refine my thoughts, teach me some things and engage in conversation um, around some of the tough matters in Joel, but also some of the really exciting and encouraging things. So I hope there's something that you can hold on to, something that encourages you, but mostly that it encourages you to read Joel for yourself. Go home and read it today. Since you're here and not away during the long weekend, you've got nothing better to do, obviously. So go read your Bible. Um, no, it's a great thing to do, and I hope you read Joel. What I've come to understand is that Joel, bottom line, is seeking to rouse Judah in particular from her spiritual complacency, from this kind of apathy that sets in. An apathy that comes from living in good times. An apathy that comes from affluence, an apathy that comes from not having any immediate threats. Am I describing anybody? I mean, for the most part, we live in a very affluent society. We live with a high degree of safety compared to many other places of the world. And we can think of some, I'm sure you're thinking of some right now. And that kind of um, uh, affluence can breed complacency. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for the church uh, in North America, in Canada, here in Calgary too, is that we've become apathetic. We no longer feel the need of the broken. We no longer make room for the emotions and the hurt and the brokenness of others around us because we're comfortable. I like being comfortable. I don't, I'm not speaking against being comfortable. I like safety and security and all those good things but it sometimes comes at a cost. 
And some of that cost is we isolate ourselves from the brokenness of the world around us. And Joel is writing to kind of shake up the people of God at this point in this time. They've become, um, they've moved from being oppressed people to becoming the oppressors. And now Joel is saying, pay attention, because now God is coming to speak to you. And that was probably the most shocking figure. We talked about this in footnotes. In all of Joel's prophecy is Joel says, there's an army coming. And at the head of the army is God himself. And he's coming against you. And that would have been a shocking kind of realization uh, because we normally turn to God for our comfort, for our help. And also God turns his attention against us and is saying, I need to hold you to account and point out some things you need to pay attention to. So how does Joel do this? How does he stir them up? How does he awaken them out of their apathy? Well, one of the things we saw is he talks to them about a natural disaster that they faced, right? This locusts that come through. There's the hopping locusts and the crawling locusts and the little tiny itty bitty locusts. There's all kinds of locusts. And they come, what do they do? They consume everything. And it's not just a famine that lasts for a short period of time. That would have lasted for years, maybe two, three, four years. Because if the locusts eat the crops and they eat all the seed, there's nothing to plant next year. So this is a major natural disaster that comes through. And that's how Joel starts. Why? Why does he do that? Well, I think one of the things natural disasters do for us is they shake us out of our safety zone. They make us realize that we're maybe not as secure as we think we are. Even small natural disasters, small things that happen, even in, in our lifetime, if there's a flood, or sometimes we hear reports of fires in houses, and some people have experienced that, right? And I always, I'm always curious when I hear about fires happening in homes in Calgary, I wanna know what caused it. Like, did this spontaneous combust? Is this going to happen in my house? It makes you a little bit uncertain. And that's what natural disasters do. They shake us up. And Joel uses this as a wake-up call to say, hey, that really rocked our world. That really shook us in a bad way. And uh, I want to tell you that there's something worse potentially coming down the road. So wake up. Pay attention. You're not as safe and secure as you think you are. Then he moves on and he talks about something bigger that's coming, the future day of the Lord. And this language really gets our attention because it's carried all throughout Scripture and into the New Testament. This idea that there's a day coming when God will set things right. And for some people, that's a day of rejoicing. For those that are facing oppression and injustice and they're wondering, will there ever be justice? That's a day of rejoicing, the day that God comes to set things right. But for those that are doing the oppressing, for those that are causing the injustice, look out, says Joel, because this is going to be a day of reckoning. And so the day of the Lord comes not as a wake-up call, but as a warning. Hey, if you don't turn around, if you don't turn this ship around, you're going to be in trouble. It's kind of like when we were driving down the road with our kids. Don't make me come back there. I'm not sure I ever would have. That would have been disastrous for the driving. But, you know, that's the kind of thing God is saying uh, through Joel. Hey, there's a warning here. And I'm warning you out of love because I care for you. It's like if we we're driving down the road and someone knew that the bridge was out up ahead and they didn't tell us, that would not be a very loving thing to do. And so there's a warning that comes. There's this future day of the Lord. It's not inevitable 
but it will happen unless you turn the ship around. And then Joel goes on to issue a call to repentance. And I think this is one of the things we began to understand is that repentance isn't meant to be filled with guilt and shame. That's how I grew up understanding repentance. And I said to the class this morning, I was almost afraid of repentance itself because repentance and um, penance kind of went hand in hand. Repentance seemed like something that was a burden filled with guilt and shame. But as we read in Joel, the word repent is translated return. Come home. You don't have to go down this road. You don't have to go down the road to judgment. You don't have to face those kind of things. Come home. Come back. That's what repentance uh, calls to us. And then we looked last week of this call to restoration, this opportunity that God's intended purpose is to restore us. So God's intended purpose, even in issuing this wake-up calling, these warnings, this call to repentance, is not to harm us. It's actually to restore us. Why? Because we're valuable. No matter how broken we think we are, no matter how messed up we think we are, we have this intrinsic value to God. So value that's valuable that he's willing to send his own son to sacrifice in order to restore us. I think that's one of the great messages of the gospel. The point of the gospel isn't to make us Christian. I don't know if we're aware of that. The point of the gospel isn't to make us churchy, right? The point of the gospel actually is to invite us to become fully human. I don't know if we've thought it in that way before, but this is really God's great restoration project. We are made in God's image. That's essentially what it means to be human. But we, we mess that image up. We, we mar it. We break it. Uh, we, we cause all kinds of concerns um, around the idea of the image of God. And, and when Jesus comes, he shows us again what it means to be truly human, what it means to be truly in the image of God. And so the whole point of the gospel is to restore us to that image, to make us again into the image of his son. It's really to become fully human. That's what we're inviting uh, others to do when we say believe the gospel. And so this is what's even coming out in Joel. This great restoration project because we are valued by God. Some of you may know the name Timothy Keller. And Tim Keller passed away just a couple of days ago. And he's a pastor, a preacher. Um, he was a, a big influence in my life, maybe many of your lives as well. And he passed away at just the age of 72. And I didn't always agree with everything that Timothy Keller uh, said and taught and preached, but I really appreciated the way he did it. He did it in a way that was uh, an invitation into conversation. Well, here's one quote in honor of Timothy Keller today that I think fits with what we're talking about. He said this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I love that. Uh, sometimes we're not terribly honest with ourselves at the level of the brokenness that we experience inside us. Uh, we hide it. We mask it uh, in many ways. And the gospel strikes right through that and says, no, no, you're broken. You really are. But it's okay because you're so loved. You're so loved beyond any way that we dared to hope. And so this is God's restoration project because he loves us so much. 
Well, today, to end up uh, the book of Joel, we are going to look at kind of the final topic that we find in the book, and that is the promise of the Spirit. The promise that there's going to be a complete and total change in the way we understand our interaction with God and the way we understand uh, God's Spirit. Now, next Sunday is actually Pentecost Sunday, but we're Baptists. We don't follow these, you know, arbitrary calendars. We, we make stuff up on the spot whenever we want. So we're celebrating Pentecost this Sunday. Actually, next week, we have Steve, Ro- Steve Roadhouse and Gull Lake uh, coming. So today is our Pentecost sermon. And the promise of the Spirit really has to do with Pentecost. And we're going to read about it in Joel chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 28 uh, to 30. <clears throat> Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. And I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark like the last few days. So pay attention. And the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion in Jerusalem will escape, just as the Lord has said, that these will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. This amazing promise that comes through Joel and that we need to look at as our final message. Sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I wonder, how is this possibly relevant? How does this translate into New Testament times? Well, thankfully, with Joel and with this passage, we don't have to wonder. We actually know exactly how it's being used, especially the first part of that passage, because the entire passage is quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Now, let me just describe the scene in case you're not super familiar with it. It's the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 which is one of the feasts of uh, the Jews in which people would pilgrimage, would have a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. So there's people gathered from all over the place coming together in Jerusalem. And in fact, Luke in his his account, he lists at least 15 different places that people have come from. And these places, they range from Iran right out to Spain, modern day Spain. They, They cover all of his known world at the time. And so all of these people have gathered together into Jerusalem. And what happens? Well, there's, there's of course, there's been the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But now as they gather for this Pentecost, the day when they would gather to celebrate the giving of the law and the formation of the nation of Israel, now suddenly the Spirit comes. And there's a lot of similar images. There's wind and there's fire just like there was wind and fire on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. And now the Spirit descends and something amazing happens. And people don't know. They don't understand what's going on. As the apostles are speaking, uh, everybody hears what they're saying in their own language. And it's this kind of miracle. And there's the excitement and there's this energy. And there's this birth of the church in many ways. And the onlookers that are watching this What do they say? Well, they don't understand what's happening. And what do we do when we don't understand something? We make stuff up. We decide on an explanation of our own. And so what do they say? These guys are all drunk. 
They must be. Because it's not uh, the Spirit, there must be the Spirit <laughs> that's in them. Because this is weird, I don't understand it, so they must be drunk. And Peter stands up and says, they're not, it's only 9 a.m. These are not day drinkers, right? These are not your normal day drinking type of people. This, in fact, he says, is what was told to you by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote almost word for word what we just read from Joel. What an amazing moment. Peter is saying, this is what was promised. This is what we're waiting for. This surprise happening, this surprise event, is exactly what Joel said would happen. So what was happening? Well, there's this gift of the Spirit, this birth of the church, and we see that happening at Pentecost. But there's this, also this movement, this change, and it's a change that we are all part of today. Three movements that I want to mention today as we go through this. First of all, there's a movement of the Spirit from some to all. As we look in the Old Testament, we understand that the Holy Spirit is present and active and working. But the Holy Spirit seems to come um, to certain people at certain times for specific things. Um, if you're a prophet like Moses, the Spirit comes and moves you, right? If you're a king like Saul or David, the Spirit is with you. Uh, there's specific people that are tasked to create uh, the artistic design of the tabernacle, and the Spirit is with them. But it seems to be temporary. It seems to be very specific to individuals. And you had to be tasked with a certain thing or have a certain, certain uh, category in the community in order to have the Spirit. But now there's a change. The Spirit is moving from some to all. Whether you're young or old, it doesn't matter. Whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter. Whether you have high status or low status, it doesn't matter, because that was the problem. Were, the onlookers were seeing all these people showing signs of the Spirit, and yet they weren't kings and prophets and priests. They weren't tasked with, with specific tasks for the temple, and yet they were showing this. And Peter says, that's exactly what Joel promised. The riffraff, you and me, everyone, will have the Spirit. That's an amazing thing. That's an incredible gift. Doesn't matter about age. Doesn't matter about gender. Doesn't matter about status. The Spirit is moving from some and temporary to all and permanent. This, this broadening of the scope of the Spirit. That's why we're here today. That's why we have the footnotes class. <laughs> That's why we, we engage in conversations together. Because it's not just the pastor standing here that, who has the Spirit or even has more of the Spirit in order to understand the Word of God. Each and every one of us are priests unto God in our own right. We all, if we are believers in Jesus, have the Spirit of God within us. That's why we cooperate together within this community. That's why when next week we're going to have a number of our youth come up, I think, right, Eric? Yeah, yeah. Maybe. We're working on it. And they're going to share with us. Why should we listen to them? You know, they haven't got any gray hairs yet. They're not old and wise. Aren't we just supposed to listen to the elders? No, because the youth who have the Spirit have something to say to us. And we need to listen to them, right? We can learn from one another because we have the Spirit. And so Peter points us out to the crowd and says, no, what's happening is legitimate. This is exactly what Joel said would happen, and it's happening now. So that's the first movement, from some to all. The second movement is from static to 
too dynamic. The temple, this static location, this one location, was seen to be not so much just the, the house where God existed. There's an understanding that God is everywhere. But it's, it was seen to be the intersection of heaven and earth. The point at which uh, heaven and earth met was at the temple. It was in this one static location. But now something amazing is happening. Now the Spirit of God is not in temples made by hands, but it's in you and me. The Spirit of God has moved from a static location to a dynamic location. We don't have to only understand the Spirit of God and worship in this place. We can interact with God anywhere we go. That's an amazing thing, this dynamic of the Spirit as we move out into the world. Paul and the apostles pick up this theme, and they even go so far as to say this in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And they say that to drive home the point that we are called to holiness. Because of that, we are called to remember that what we do with our bodies, whether we act in acts of violence or whether we're unkind or whether we do things that harm society, um, that's wrong. Why? Because these bodies, these physical things, are temples of the Holy Spirit. They're meant for good. They're meant to create community. They're meant to care for those around us because the Spirit of God is in us. What the temple was in that holy place for the community, so each and every one of us can be for the communities in which we live. And so this movement out from static to dynamic, wherever God's people go, that's where the Spirit is as well in that uh, particular sense. So from some to all and from static to dynamic, but then from external to internal. And I think this is the big movement we find moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This idea of, of the external sense of the Spirit, the external sense of rules, moving to something that's very internal, very motivated from inside. When I was 18, I decided to have a change of course. I think it was God's call in my life uh, to not pursue a certain direction and instead go to college in Scotland and study theology. And little did I know that uh, I would be heading into a college that was probably the most strict place in all of Britain, it felt like. It was worse than uh, 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 Peace River. What was it, Peace River Bible Institute? Yeah, it was even worse than that, Eric. Only I didn't rebel. I uh, stayed true to the faith. <clears throat> I gotta stop digging to Eric for that. But he brings it up, so. But I was leaving the Okanagan, I was a typical Okanagan boy, if you've been around the Okanagan in the summertime, you'll know what I mean. Just uh, living life free and on the lake and not dressing up very much at all at any point in my life. And I went to this college where I had to suddenly wear like a suit and tie and I had to behave and I had to go, you know, uh, there's specific times for devotionals and there's specific times for work and there's specific times for eating and there's specific, we even had to stand around the table and wait for the matron to come in and all the men had to sit around one side of the table and all the women on the other side of the table. Like it was ridiculous. And so there was this forced kind of structure, this external structure that was placed on me. And to be honest, I kind of needed it. <laughs> and it was kind of beneficial. But the real test came when that structure was removed, when I graduated, 
Would I continue with the good habits of faith? Would I continue with my good attitudes toward one another? And was that motivation now internalized? And I think we see that same kind of change. There's so much of the Old Testament is this external structure. And even Paul says, the law was like a schoolmaster to bring you to Jesus. We've been singing about freedom in Christ. But there's a sense of uh, freedom can be a dangerous thing if we haven't been, you know, trained uh, through the scriptures. Because now we have to rely on internal motivation, not just the rules around us. But that's where the Spirit comes in. Because the Spirit doesn't just give us these laws around us as we see in the Old Testament, but the Spirit now moves within us. And that's the big change that happens. And I think this is where we have to be careful. Because in the Christian faith, so often, we try and be better Christians by behaving better, right? We try and dig down deep. You're going to be kind today to the drivers on the road. You're going to be nice to your children and your spouse. And you try and will yourself to be better. Or you try and put structures around to make yourself better. And that's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that the Spirit is inside us. And as we yield our heart to the Spirit, so He transforms us. And so I need to remember that. It's not just about willpower. The motivation actually is now coming from within. And that's the secret of what it means to live the Christian life. So this is the movement of the Spirit, from some to all, from static to dynamic, from external to internal. And all of this is the hope that Joel gives to the people of God and that Peter realizes is happening on the day of Pentecost. So Joel wakes us up from our spiritual lethargy. He calls us to repent and return to God and to receive God's blessings. But in the end, it isn't the fear of calamity, it isn't the fear of punishment that causes us to turn back to God. It's actually His mercy and His open welcome and His promise that we won't have to do this on our own. That's all part of Joel's gospel. And so we can know um, the will of God's Spirit because God's Spirit is within us. And even as the day of the Lord is spoken of in the New Testament, as still approaching a day of reckoning coming, we can have peace knowing that we are right with God because His Spirit has been sent to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your spirit. Thank you that when Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended, that he did not leave us on our own, but that he sent the spirit to be with us, to teach us, to correct us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to be with us in all the ways that Jesus was with his own disciples during those years. Father, help us to come to the reality of that truth. Help us to rely not on our own willpower, our own strength, but to somehow rest in the power of your spirit within us. Pray that you'd help us to do that as individuals, but also as a congregation, that we might have the assurance that you are with us, even during challenging times. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.